This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on today's program, I want to think with you about emerging adulthood, implications for the church and culture. Nearly two weeks ago, I read a book by sociologist Christian Smith while returning to Omaha on a plane. I was an astounding account for me of the cultural phenomenon called emerging adulthood. For those of us in leadership, it is imperative that we come to terms with this stage of human development, especially in America. So in this perspective, I hope to define this stage of human development, speculate on its causes, and cite a few implications of this development. First of all, a definition. Basically, America invented the stage of human development called adolescence. America identified this stage as a unique stage in the development of becoming an adult. It begins about 12 or 13 and continues until about age 18. But now, sociologists are calling for the recognition of another stage before full adulthood called emerging adulthood. Coined by Jeffrey Arnett, the phrase emerging adulthood, stage of development between 18 and 30, is now being studied extensively by Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith. His book that I read coming back to Omaha was entitled Lost in Transition. Smith characterizes the features of this stage, emerging adulthood, as intense identity exploration, instability, a focus on self, feelings of being in limbo and transition in between, a sense of possibilities, opportunities, and unparalleled hope. These are often accompanied by large doses of transience, confusion, anxiety, self-obsession, melodrama, conflict, disappointment, and sometimes even emotional devastation. Close that quote. The steps through schooling, a first real job, marriage, and parenthood, all definitions associated with adulthood, are simply less well-organized and coherent today than they were in the past. As Smith argues, these years are marked by historically unparalleled freedom to roam, experiment, learn, move on, and try again. Arnett and Smith see emerging adulthood as the recognition of unique characteristics that explain a new and particular phase of human development. Secondly, what are the forces that have combined to create this new phase in American life called emerging adulthood? There are six identifiable changes over the last several decades that have helped create this stage of human development. First of all, the dramatic growth in higher education. The GI Bill, changes in the American economy and government subsidizing higher education, all led in the second half of the 20th century to a dramatic rise in the number of high school graduates going to college. More recently, the need for graduate education has been added as an expectation, indeed a requirement, for social advancement. Hence, a huge proportion of young adults do not stop their education at age 18, but extend their formal training well into their 20s. 
Those continuing in graduate education often do so well into their late 20s and even early 30s. Second, another powerful social change helping to produce emerging adulthood is the delay of marriage. Between 1950 and 2006, the median age of the first marriage for women rose from 22.8 to 25.7, for men from 22 to almost 28 years of age. Typically, young people finished high school, married, and then began having children. Today, many young adults spend almost a decade between high school graduation and marriage exploring life's many options as singles in a period of unprecedented freedom. Thirdly, the global nature of our economy has undermined stable, lifelong careers and replaced them with careers with lower security, more frequent job changes, and the ongoing need for new training and education. Therefore, extended schooling, delayed marriage, and arguably a general psychological orientation toward maximizing options and postponing commitments. Far from being happy to graduate from high school and take a factory job or an office job, many youth today spend five to ten years experimenting with different jobs and career options before finally deciding on long-term career direction. Number four, parents today are often more willing than ever to help their young adults financially, well into their 20s and even into their early 30s. This financial help from parents enables emerging adults to have freedom to live a lifestyle until they settle down into full adulthood, which again is defined by financial independence, a stable career, and the end of all schooling. Number five, beginning in the 1960s, numerous and reliable birth control technologies became widely available. The last five decades have witnessed major changes in the variety, reliability, ease, and accessibility of such methods. The primary cultural effect of this technology has been to disconnect sexual intercourse from procreation in the minds of many Americans. Sex has therefore become a normal element of many close or perhaps even casual relationships. It is also occasionally a recreational activity of sorts. And one of the results of that is what is now called the hookup culture. It's an effect of this reality of disconnecting, by means of birth control methods, sex and procreation, having children. Sex is now seen as a normal part of a relationship and even, indeed, recreational. Finally, number six, and for me, who has written on worldview issues, this is perhaps the most important. The impact of postmodernism on emerging adults cannot be minimized. This deep-seated set of characteristics, a radical hermeneutic, radical pluralism, radical relativism, radical morality, a radical pragmatism, define and support the emerging adult's worldview. This worldview has both caused and perhaps more importantly justified most of the choices of the typical emerging adult. A radical autonomy is the vital center of almost everything the emerging adult does and thinks. Furthermore, the technology of this age, the cell phone, the smartphone, iPad, iPod, all of these things enable and empower the emerging adult 
to define his or her own reality. This entails almost all entertainment choices, leisure choices, purchasing choices, even food and clothing purchases. Further, the social networks, especially Facebook and Twitter, frame the social dynamic of the emerging adult. This technology reinforces all the other elements that explain the phenomena I'm calling the emerging adult. So finally, in this perspective, what are the implications of emerging adulthood for the church and for the larger culture? For the culture, Smith demonstrates that this stage in life has resu- is resulting in far more confusion and lack of certainty about almost everything for this age group. Their lives and their worldview are constantly in flux. There is no commitment whatsoever to institutions. The typical emerging adult has no commitment to government, no commitment to the family as normally defined, and most importantly, no commitment to the church. Typically, most emerging adults are not attending church in any regular manner and are not involved in any ministry in the church. As Smith's book shows, they do not vote and are not engaged in civic service or in volunteerism. For the church, this generation, 18 to 30, begin to come back to the church once they begin having their own children. They ask, do we really want to raise our children without any spiritual impact? So they come back. But the church does not exactly know what to do with them. Many of them view church through the grid of the youth group with all the fun, excitement, and energy so characteristic of current youth groups. Regular church is not like that, and often they do not fit in. In my view, the church needs to seek a greater level of understanding about emerging adulthood and develop plans and strategies on how to reach them and how to minister to them. The church is losing its youth in increasing numbers. When they come back, are we ready for them? Answering that question is perhaps one of the most important agenda items for the church in the future. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the importance of worldview, and I want to use something from the ancient world to illustrate it. Compare Roman paganism with early Christianity. Recently, I read a remarkable magazine on medicine and health care throughout history. What was most striking in this magazine was an article on health care in the Roman Empire. In my opinion, nothing illustrates the power of worldview in explaining social change than this article. I'm talking about the period from 30 B.C. to 180 A.D. It's called Pax Romana, a period of unprecedented wealth, security, communication in the Mediterranean world. This period was the apex of Hellenistic culture. The Roman army kept this forced peace and communication in this empire that extended from Britain all the way to uh, Jerusalem was relatively easy because of the fantastic Roman road system. But, as historian Gary B. Ferngren has shown, compassion was not a well-developed virtue among pagan Romans. Mercy was discouraged, as it only helped those too weak to contribute to society. In the cramped, 
unsanitary warrens of the typical Roman city under the miserable cycle of plagues and famines, the sick found no public institutions dedicated to their care and little in the way of sympathy or help. Perhaps a family member would come to their aid. Perhaps, but sometimes even close relatives would leave them to die. Roman civilization centered on over 5,000 cities, which stretched from Britain in the west to Jerusalem in the east. The cities teemed with thousands of people, and the separation between rich and powerful, poor and disadvantaged was marked. Perhaps the Roman baths in each urban area symbolized this social difference more powerfully than anything else. Only the rich, only the military could take advantage of these places of luxury and leisure. Furthermore, in a world filled with gods, the Greco-Roman world had no basis for caring for the sick, the destitute, or the dying. The gods were viewed as selfish, immoral, and capricious. Greco-Roman mythology taught that humans were often an annoyance to the gods. In this worldview, there was no basis for the concept of human dignity or human worth. Therefore, the following practices were quite common in the Greco-Roman world. Let me just cite several. One, the sick and the elderly were routinely left to waste away. If you lived in Rome, on a Tiber island, that's where the dead went to die. Secondly, unwanted children were often left to die of exposure. Three, if a father determined that the family could not afford to feed another child, that child would be abandoned on the steps of a temple or in the public square. Fourthly, defective newborns were routinely left to die of exposure, almost anywhere in an urban area. Number five, female infants were exposed more often than males because girls could not really support the family, and when she would marry, the family needed to provide a dowry. Sixth, the chronically ill in the Roman Empire were often seen everywhere, in the streets, in the baths, in the forms of the Roman cities. Finally, many sick tried to awaken the gods to care for them. Most regularly, the god Asclepius, who was worshipped in hundreds of temples and shrines throughout the Roman Empire. Historian Ferengvin reports, they would offer a small sacrifice, then sleep overnight in the abaton, that's a sacred enclosure in the temple, where they believed that the god might appear to them, sometimes in a dream, to heal them. However, by the first century A.D., a new ethic was penetrating the Roman Empire, Christianity. Christians began to care for the sick and the destitute. That Christian ethic was founded on the concept that God created humans in his image, the Imago Dei. And that proposition was the basis for the worth and value of every human being. Genesis 9-6 established the basis for justice and the value of humans. That verse reads, whoever shed man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he, God, made man. Furthermore, because of the Imago Dei, child sacrifice, exposure of infants, infanticide, and even castration were all forbidden. In addition, the doctrine of the Incarnation, where the second person of the Trinity added to his deity humanity, deepened the implications of Imago Dei, the image of God. Finally, the teaching of Jesus in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 profoundly challenged the Greco-Roman ethic 
This new ethic of compassionate love was shown not to the deserving, but to the despised, indeed, even to enemies. God loved us while we were sinners. Jesus commanded his hearers to go and do likewise. The 4th century historian Eusebius reported on the power of a Christian testimony in this pagan Roman Empire. Listen to his words. Quote, Then did the evidences of the universal zeal and piety of the Christians become manifest to all the heathen. Eusebius goes on, For they alone in the midst of such ills showed their sympathy and humanity by their deeds. Every day some continued caring for and burying the dead. For there were multitudes who had no one to care for them. Others collected in one place those who were afflicted by the famine throughout the entire city and gave bread to them all. Close that extended quote from the 4th century historian Eusebius. Dear people, the love of God was manifested powerfully by the early Christians, and that love is what transformed the Roman world. So for us in the 21st century, may we Christians demonstrate God's love in the same manner. Our words and our works should mesh perfectly as we engage this culture as the salt and as the light of Jesus Christ. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to summarize and comment upon an astounding revelation in former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice's new book. It's a startling account. It's an account of an offer that the former Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Omer, made secretly to Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority. That conversation and that offer occurred in the summer of 2008. Listen to Rice's summary of this offer that Omer made to Mahmoud Abbas. She was there. She was present. She recorded it. Number one, Israel would transfer sovereignty of over 94% of the West Bank to the new Palestinian state. There were also to be additional land swaps and a corridor linking the West Bank and Gaza. The result of this would be that 100% of the pre-1967 border of the West Bank would go to the Palestinians. Number two, Omer offered Abbas a formula for dividing Jerusalem that would give Arab neighborhoods to the Palestinians and Jewish neighborhoods to Israel with negotiations to work out the status of the mixed neighborhoods in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be the capital of both Israel and of the Palestinian state, with a joint city council. Number three, the old city would be administered by an international committee with representatives from Palestine, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, the European Union, and the United States. Four, the right of return, a battle cry of many Palestinians, would be limited to 5,000 people. There would then be a compensation fund set up for other Palestinian refugees entailing over billions and billions of dollars. That fund would be administered by the Norwegian government. Finally, the United States, as Omer shared all this with Abbas, would protect the security of Israel, but would also assist in training a reliable Palestinian security force. Dear people, when I read that, I was utterly shocked. 
This was offering the Palestinians everything they wanted. In addition, Omer showed Abbas maps that charted the boundaries of this new state and arrangement. What did Mahmoud Abbas do with this extraordinary offer? He balked. He would not sign the maps, nor would he sign the agreement. He said he needed to consult with his experts in the Palestinian Authority. He never got back to Ehud Omer. Dear people, this is an amazing revelation in Rice's new book. Once again, Israel offered the Palestinians virtually everything they had been demanding, but they refused. Furthermore, when President Obama came into office, he did not build on this Israeli offer, but instead demanded that Israel cease all settlements as a condition for resumed negotiations. What a mistake! I believe that this will be seen as one of the greatest blunders of Obama's administration in foreign affairs. It was a disaster, and it has been that way. This account by former Secretary Condoleezza Rice once again illustrates that no matter what Israel offers, the Palestinians will never recognize Israel's right to exist. That alone remains the fundamental issue of the Middle East today. We saw that in the waning days of Bill Clinton's administration, when you had Ehud Barak, then prime minister, make almost the same offer to Yasser Arafat. He refused it, and he went back and started the second intifada, the second uprising. A few years ago, in the summer of 2008, Ehud Omer made almost the same offer to Mahmoud Abbas, said, I can't do it. He even had maps laying out on the table that show what this would look like. Abbas said, I can't do it. What the problem is, is the Palestinians, and indeed every other nation in the Middle East, refuses to recognize Israel's right to exist. Because that's the price Israel's asking. We'll give you everything you need, everything you want, everything you've been demanding, but you must recognize our right to exist. You must recognize that Israel is a homeland for the Jewish people. They won't recognize that. So, dear people, let's stop all this polit political bantering. Let's stop putting all this pressure on Israel. The main and fundamental and bedrock issue is the nations that surround the country of Israel refuse to recognize its right to exist and refuse to recognize it. It is a homeland for the Jewish people. Until and unless they recognize that, they cannot expect Israel to give anything more. They've offered them everything they want. This shows again, this is never going to be solved permanently until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It's too volatile, and the Bible tells us that. It will not be solved. But it doesn't mean we don't try, and it certainly doesn't mean that we do not keep before the people of the world that the issue isn't Israel's willing to negotiate. They have offered the Palestinians everything. It's that they will not recognize that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish homeland. Until and unless they do that, there will be no peace. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. 
Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.